0: Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Fatima Suárez.
0: Prof. Fatima, it's a great pleasure to meet you. We've gossiped for a couple of minutes, and I've been admiring your printer, your nice chair around the desk, the beautiful books behind you, the artwork and everything. So it's really fun to see a little bit of your office or study life. Um, and first thing I wanted to ask you was about what's dynamizing you, interesting you, troubling you, holding you back, propelling you at the moment. What's happening?
1: Uh, at what's happened? That's a good, good question. For me right now, what's really propelling me forward, or or what's invigorating me right now, yeah. is mm-hmm. my st are my students. I'm teaching a course right now an undergraduate course on masculinities. And and I teach it twice a week. And every time I go into the classroom, I'm just, I'm feeling very excited because the students in that class are brilliant. They are widely read. They are just very smart, intelligent young people. And I'm always I always feel energized when I leave the classroom after after we meet. I always feel like I've learned something new from them. Um, and in fact, this week, since it was Valentine's Day, one of my students gave me a Valentine's Day gift. And in the card, she told me that she really loved my teaching and that if I taught yeah. all the classes in the sociology department, that she would gladly enroll in all of them. So, Being appreciated for my teaching and being, and and for them to see my passion that I have for this work um, was really empowering this Mm -hmm. week for me. Um, So, my students is one, and then my book is the other. I'm currently in the final stages of finishing the book manuscript. And the looming deadline at the end of March is propelling me forward.
0: <laughs> yes. All right. Because we're speaking middle of February. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. Yes. Ativa, por favor. Adelante, hombre. <laughs> yes.
1: That, that is, that is uh, give, you know, it's giving me the push that I need to get to the finish line. Right. But it's work that I love. It's a project that I'm passionate about and that I've, been thinking about for a very long time and so to to be at this stage of the process it's it's worth it's worth celebrating as at the same time that I feel very anxious and stressed about it
0: I'll bet well could we talk about the the book manuscript in a moment and from what I've Mm -hmm. read about it 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 does relate a bit at least to the class probably
1: Mm -hmm. In, in
0: certain areas at least Tell us a little bit about the profile of the students that you're teaching and that you're learning so much from as well. And I'm mm-hmm. sure it's a mutual encounter.
1: Yeah, so uh, these students in my class are all, all almost all of them, I, I think, are first-generation college students, meaning that they are the first person in their family to go to college. All of them come from working-class backgrounds, and some of them – are also working at the same time that they're going to school. Mm-hmm. I have one student who works at a burger joint and another student who works as at a, uh, as a ticket, uh, as a person who looks at, um, who who works at these venues where they have concerts and performances and they're the oh, ones yeah. who check your tickets. Yeah. And so, and so these students are coming with a lot of life experience and, um, they're coming with a lot of rich stories and 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 knowledge that they bring into the classroom, and it's it's really it's really inspiring to see, especially in in the time that we're in in the United States, where there appears to be this very intense degree of like anti-intellectualism and you know this an assault on thought. Um, to have students who are are just are drawing upon their personal stories to really make sense of the world around them and to make sense of the
0: of the material that we are covering in class and masculinities is the kind of subject matter that can lead to really annoying appalling sometimes violent opposition from the cultural right
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. So you're, you're teaching mm-hmm. occupied terrain, I would imagine. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and and if I could be very honest with you, Toby, when I was prepping for this course at mm. the beginning of the semester, I was worried mm. um, about about whether or not I would face that opposition um, prior prior to to the start of the semester in December um, of last year. There was a campus shooting at UNLV, which is where I teach in Las Vegas. Um, And that really put, I really shaped just, it was a tragedy and it shaped everyone's experiences, relationships to the campus, students who, you know, come to college, came to this university to better their lives and the lives of their families for it to be desecrated by someone who felt entitled to a job that they were not given um, that they were not hired for. So having had that traumatizing event happen on campus a few weeks before I started teaching uh, a course on masculinities, which is, you know, which is a lens that we can use to, to make sense of these mass shootings in the United States that made me nervous i was i was very anxious and nervous and i i think many of my colleagues who study these topics not just with masculinities but with um immigration race and racism i think some of my colleagues are also feeling a little bit apprehensive or nervous given the the contemporary climate here in the us
0: and of course one fears that that could get worse in the coming months especially over summer and campaign season And then, who knows, if Mm -hmm. the monster wins, what comes next? Yeah, so it's about serious times, but dragging things back to the content of the class before moving on to your exciting book that I'm really thrilled to learn about, Mm -hmm. tell us some of the issues, the problematics, the theories, the discourses, the problems that Mm -hmm. you address in the course.
1: Yes so right now um so at at th- right now I'm we're focusing on historicizing masculinity so the last mm-hmm. few weeks we've uh discussed how masculinity has changed over time and really our modern conceptions of masculinity in the United States really stem from the social transformations that were happening at the beginning of at the turn of the century at, in the, at, um, at the turn of the century and so we're going back to look at how masculinity has changed how has it evolved into what we understand it to be today um, we're focusing on issues concerning families and intimate relationships we're focusing on issues concerning violence so in the course, we are reading um about mass shootings, which also added to my nervousness at the beginning of the semester. We're focusing on sports, particularly football because of the sanctity of football in the United States um, and we're focusing on issues with regards to like women and women's masculinities and how masculinity. Isn't um a concept that can be solely reduced to men and male bodies, but that women are also particip you know participating in, in evoking and acting a masculinity. And so what are some of the issues that we're that we're tapping into um in, in the course? It
0: sounds an amazing class. I wish I could take it. I feel as though I'd learn a lot. <laughs> and, and could you Transition now a bit onto talking about the book. It's probably yes. the last thing you feel like talking about because you're in the <laughs> running. As I said, final lap, prof F. Ringing, <laughs> get a wiggle on. But yeah. Could you share with us something of what you're what you're getting at in, in the book? What it's called, what it does, all those sorts of things.
1: Mm-hmm. So my book is Called tentatively because press always changes the names before it goes to publication. But my book right now is entitled Latino Fathers Challenging Myths, Negotiating Ideals. And it's a book that focuses on what fatherhood means in the lives of Latino men and how Latino fathers make sense of their roles as fathers and how and and the social forces that shape their fathering so in the book i i focus on work and employment which is um in any research on fatherhood work and employment are often the most widely discussed topics um i focus on their relationships with their own fathers and how that is a driving force behind the, uh, the fathering practices that the men that I spoke with employ. Um, I also focus on childhood and how these modern ideals about childhood may, you know, how, how they shape how fathers think about their parenting and the kind of childhood they want to provide for their children. Um, and I and right now I was revising a chapter on motherhood and how motherhood continues to be sort of a benchmark or parenting and how fathers are up against a you know societal and cultural valorization of mothers, um, and how that makes them feel uh, incompetent to a certain extent to be the parents that they aspire to be. So this book overall focuses on what enables their parenting, what obstructs, or what what are the challenges that you face as parents, but also how they are also trying to challenge these larger myths about, about themselves, because in the United States, um, Latino men face, are, are, face these racist, um, imagery about themselves. And so at the same time that they're trying to be good parents, they're also trying to challenge these st- racial
0: stereotypes about them. It sounds like a fantastic book. I'm now envious of your students and also the first readers of this manuscript once it's delivered to the press. For those folks outside the U.S., could you tell us a bit about some of these stereotypes, the Mm -hmm. the issues that perhaps both Latino men and Latino women? Mm -hmm. Because just to give some context, there are two big national broadcasters on Mm -hmm. television that are Spanish-language. And there are Spanish radio stations. There's lots of Spanish language cultural production mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. But, of course, the the Latin population in the U.S. is extremely diverse. Uh, Puerto mm-hmm. Ricans are citizens of the U.S., even though they don't have proper political representation. And they mm-hmm. and Dominicans often have African de- descent quite directly whereas lots of people have Mexican descent, they have Colombian descent, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's a hugely diverse population Mm -hmm. that does have its own cultural outlets and cultural production at the same time as it is subject to gruesome everyday and mediatic Mm -hmm. stereotypes. I hope that's a fair kind of Mm -hmm. intervention. But could you perhaps colour that in a bit for us, give it more verve and meaning? than I was able to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, and to build off on that, I mean, it makes, it it, it says something when the previous president of the United States, Donald Trump, he started his political campaign for um, his first uh, term on the backs of Mexican immigrant men by calling them bad hombres, that they're rapists, that they're drug dealers, they're criminals. And so he uh, started his political career and he started his his presidential campaign really on the backs of these men. Oh, yeah. And what Donald Trump was doing was that he was diving, he was drawing, drawing upon this wellspring of racist imagery that exists about lat- Latino men um, broadly, although he based his campaign on Mexican immigrant men but in the United States if you're not Mexican if you're Puerto Rican or if you're Dominican or Salvadoran oftentimes Mexican is used to racialize broadly um, and and homogenize Latinos Um, but but he was drawing upon a wellspring of of racist Uh, Tropes, or what Patricia Hill Collins calls like controlling images of Latino men that they are, uh, and they're frequently portrayed as docile menial laborers, undocumented criminals. They're portrayed as controlling and authoritarian, particularly of their wives and their daughters um they're also frequently seen as anti-education that they don't support their children's educational aspirations they're also framed as hypermasculine and hypersexual um and so those are some of the tropes surrounding latino men and in particular the, the tropes around their parenting that they're quote unquote old school traditional meaning that they have these traditional beliefs about men's and women's roles in the home and the role that uh, that women should be in the home and um, their controlling of their daughters, especially around their sexuality. These are some of the imagery, some of the messaging that, that exists about Latino men and Latino fathers. And I've come across that imagery, I've come across all those ideas, especially when I'm talking about my work. Um, and it's and, and that's why I partly why I do the work that I do to kind of participate in challenging those those uh, racist assumptions.
0: And do you mind my asking you a biographical question about this? Yes, prof Fatima, because you're Latina. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you grew up. Um California? I, yes. I was just thinking that because I read that you went to college in California. Yes, <laughs> so presumably you've grown up living with these stereotypes, mm-hmm. at a at a level of the media, of education, your own family, your own sense of self. Now, not asking you to reveal more than you want to, but does mm-hmm. that play a part in choosing these topics and the way in which you think about them, your own lived experience?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, You know, my, this project was really inspired by my father, by my relationship with my father. Um, My father was, oh, is, uh, you know, he was very supportive of his his daughters. I have three younger sisters.
0: Uh, And he was
1: always very supportive of us, supportive of our Education, supporting of us going to college. Um, when I was uh, thinking about whether I could afford to go to a private liberal arts college, um, because I thought maybe it would be too expensive, I wouldn't be able to afford it. My dad told me, "Por eso yo trabajo para pagar tu escuela." That's why I work to pay for your education, and and though. And I didn't, I didn't read about those experiences in my college class classes. I didn't read about men like my father being very supportive of their daughter's mm-hmm. education, um, hoping their daughters become profession professionals and have have successful careers. Those are not the ideas I read about in my college classes. But the paradox that really has propelled me to go back to an earlier question you asked, the paradox of my life that's really propelled the work that I do is, while my dad was very supportive of his daughters, I would even go as far to say that he was a feminist father to his daughters, his relationship with my mom was very traditional. She was she was the primary breadwinner of the family. My mother was a stay-at-home parent. So she was financially and, and at times very emotionally dependent on my dad. So I got to thinking, why was my dad a different man for his daughters than he was for his wife? Um and, and that that question, that that contradiction propelled me to, to really dedicate. This chapter of my intellectual life to interrogating, so, you know, that question and similar questions to that as wow. that
0: one. Thank you for being so frank. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. It's, nobody's perfect. It's great to hear your dad did some great things, mm-hmm. he does some great things. But as you say, there is often this tension that many of us feel between progress and conservatism, between mm-hmm. innovation and tradition and Mm -hmm. stereotypical roles and breaking free of them
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the recognition that we're complex human beings and that our lives are um, our lives are complex and you know the single story about Latino fathers has been that they're uninvolved They are not supportive of their families. They're, they just, you know, work and they don't, are not emotionally laden nurturers. Um, and with this book, I really wanted to nuance that story and to complicate it by looking at, by highlighting these men's, you know, lives and, and their stories and how they don't necessarily fit the mold. They don't fit the box that, dominant society puts them in Um, and that's what I what I aim to do with with this book is to provide some nuance um, and to really appreciate the beautifully complex humanity of these men.
0: Could you tell us a bit about how you went about this? Mm -hmm. What do you mean? How you found out about Latino fathers what did you know did you read the Encyclopedia Britannica did you watch <laughs> Telemundo did you watch narco novelas oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well uh, well aside from growing up and being raised by a Latino father I did a lot of reading <laughs> um I read I read um several books uh especially by like, anthropologists who have been who have done this work um Matthew Gutman uh, uh, he's he's now since retired, but he published a book called "The Meanings of Macho: Being a Man in Mexico City," um, which was very foundational for for the work that I do now. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading, and then I to to find men who would be willing to sit down with me for a conversation. Um, I went to local parks, um, and beaches during weekends. Hmm. Um, I went to uh, family expos and events that targeted families. Um, I also uh, met with several school leaders um, who allowed me to recruit parents, fathers at their various school events that targeted Latino, Latina families. And at all of these events, um, at all these places, I had a packet of like re- like resource pamphlets that I had made with like facts about Latino families in the United States. Um, I also had little flyers that I had made with information about my interview project and um, my, my my information as the as the person who was doing this project. And I handed those you know little pamphlets out. And then, when i had when, I, when parents agreed to to let me interview them, then I asked them, "Do you know someone who would be willing to to meet with me?" And I was able to meet some fathers through those through those networks. So I did an array of of different strategies to meet and find fathers who who would be uh who would be willing to to sit with me
0: for a conversation. That's great, and this was at University of California, Santa Barbara. Your PhD, yeah. yes.
1: But I interviewed fathers all over California, so the majority of the fathers that I spoke with um, live in Los Angeles at County, and also in the Bay Area, which yeah. is where like San Francisco,
0: San Jose, yeah, um, yeah. That, the
1: northern region of of California.
0: Yes, just to let people know, uh, Santa Barbara is a kind of uh, whites-only <clears throat> enclave, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> even though it is sustained by a little pueblitos up and down mm-hmm. the coast where Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos live and basically provide all the services that make white people's lives happy. Because mm-hmm. Santa Barbara, not talking about the university, but the town is a wealthy person's paradise. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Can't survive without Latino Latina labor.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the city where um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle live. (laughs) That's where they moved to.
0: (laughs) One of the um, interesting moments that I had during the 2008 fiscal crisis when I was Mm -hmm. talking to a guy who edited a magazine for billionaires Mm. It's published in Santa Barbara. And I asked him, so are your advertising sales or your customer sales down? No. Okay. Do you cover the global financial crisis? No. And how come not? Our readers don't know there is one. Oh. (laughs) And he turned on his heel and left. But it told me a lot about (laughs) life life, prof F for the 1%. It was right there in front of me. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, But, you know, I felt like an idiot, but also in a way privileged Mm -hmm. to see how that life was. But, yeah, I mean, for for people to know, there are, you know, particularly Mexican and Mexican-Americans all over the United States, increasingly, even in little towns. But big time in California. Oh, yes. Which, of course, was part of Mexico, and uh, as were other states of the Union, as we now understand them. And without the working life of Latino men and women, life, especially in California, but in other parts of the country, for middle class people, mostly but not all white, would simply be much tougher. Mm hmm. Much, much tougher. Mm-hmm. The The kinds of exclusion that goes on is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. It's inclusion and exclusion. Inclusion because labour is needed. Exclusion from the gifts mm-hmm. and the pleasures that are generated mm-hmm. by that labour. Having said that, can I ask whether the folks that you met were from different social class backgrounds?
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: there are plenty of middle class and wealthy Latinos in the United States.
1: Yes. Yes. No, that's a great question. Yes. I. Um, so my, so I interviewed 60 Latino fathers, like I said, from all over California. Wow. Half of them are working class, meaning that they um, have – A high school diploma or less, they work in jobs that are skilled or semi-skilled. They work skilled, semi-skilled, or unskilled jobs, Um, and those jobs are mostly they don't have social benefits like health insurance or retirement. Um, And then I enter, and then the the other half of the participants um, are college educated. They work in what we call we refer to as white collar professional jobs most of the professional fathers that i interviewed work in education or they are lawyers um and almost all but two of them two of all but two of the professional fathers i interviewed were were the gener were um, the generation that experienced upward social mobility. So they were raised in working class poor homes, and they're the first ones in their families to go to college, and they're the ones, the first generation in their family to work in a professional sector. So i I decided to to look for both working class and middle class Latino fathers because. The, although there is this, you know, vibrant literature on Latino fathers, um, most of our research is, uh, focuses on working class yes. immigrant forefathers. And as you said, there is a growing middle class of Mexican Americans, of Latinos in the United States. But because social scientists have primarily focused on working class, uh, low income Uh, people that also obscures our understanding and it colors our understanding to make assumptions about well all Latinos are either working class or low income or poor when in fact that's not the case so I was very intentional about recruiting professional um, fathers which is why I went to expos and you know, family events, and I I went to se- several places where I would I would be exposed to the population that is professional, highly educated, um, as well as like local parks and swap meets and
0: and beaches. And in terms of age and language, did you see many differences? I'm interested in how many of these guys were bilingual. Mm -hmm. spanish dominant or english dominant they might have had kitchen spanish Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they might be fully bilingual they might not speak spanish at all which is an important Mm -hmm. people to know especially if they're middle class and they've left that behind them in a certain sense so could you talk Mm -hmm. to us about some of the differences that you saw in terms of things like age and language or or -hmm. similarities that you saw
1: Yes, so the men that I interviewed they were between 25 and 73 years of age, um, with most of them being uh, like in their 40s, like the average being in their 40s. Um, and in terms of language, uh, because half of my um, my uh, my participants were first generation. Uh, meaning that they had migrated either as adults or as children, they spoke Spanish. Um, and the other half uh, who are second and later generation, most of them were bilingual, but they were, but, but there were a few, particularly those who identified as third and later generation who knew, uh, I'm going to borrow your phrase, kitchen Spanish. They and and they knew and they use mostly like Chicano Spanish. So that that Spanish is like Spanglish, where Spanish and English words are merged. Um But if you go to Mexico, those words don't exist.
0: Buenos uh, dias, hoy, mañana, this morning, con el piolín.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so there was so in general, uh, the majority of respond of respondents I spoke with had some knowledge of Spanish. Yeah, right. Um, yeah.
0: But, it, uh, but some and- of it might be talking to the abuela around the kitchen table, yes. or something like that, or watching baseball with the abuelo. In in very gendered terms, and that's where mm-hmm. it would come in that's what I sort of mean by kitchen Spanish. You know, so mm-hmm. everyday capacity to communicate, but not what you're thinking in, dreaming in, conceptualizing. Mm -hmm. Etc. Right, and and without much formal learning. Um, Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And and age. That's great. You had that big spread. So, getting back to the class question, Prof, did you see a difference in terms of stories they told you about fathering or attitudes they evinced that you Mm -hmm. could connect to class or to any of these other factors that you've just outlined for us?
1: Yes, I mean class it was very significant in shaping how these men thought about their roles and thought about their responsibilities to their families. Um, to to go to to zoom in on the on the issue of work and employment in the in California in uh, the United States, Latino men out of all racial ethnic groups of all men, of all racial and ethnic groups, Latino men have the highest rate of participation in the labor market. And they, has, and they have the lowest earnings out of all men of all racial ethnic groups. And they also have the lowest access to paid parental leave, um, which is paid family leave. In the United States, we do not have a federal policy on fam- paid family leave. We're the only industrialized country in the world, I believe, that does not have a national family, paid family leave program. In California, California is uh, the first state, I believe, to have a paid family leave program. But because of the requirements, the eligibility requirements, Latino men are still ineligible or unable to access paid family leave because it only covers up to 60% of their wages. Now, if you are a Latino father who is working the most but earning the least, you can't forfeit six to eight weeks. And earn sixty percent of those wages living in California, as you stated, which is very expensive, um, and sixty percent of their wages wouldn't be enough to survive. And so, even though in a state of in a place like California that is quite progressive in compared to other parts of the country, and have made efforts, concerted efforts to pass policies to support working fathers, to access this you know this this uh benefit there's still men including latino fathers who cannot access those benefits so they're caught in a policy bind um is what i is what i say is what i write about in my in my in the first chapter of my book um but going back to your question of class and how that shapes so it's no surprising that out of 60 participants i interviewed only Eight took family leave, and all those men who took family leave were all professional, highly educated working fathers. But they only took between two to three weeks, um, and it was after the the it was after later in, after their wives had taken family lives. So they were not necessarily spending the, the immediate time after their children were born with them. It was later on. Um, and the men, the reason, and when I asked them, well, you were eligible for six weeks. Why did you take half of that? Or why did you take a fourth of that? And the men conveyed that they felt like they couldn't take all that leave because it risked Their professional careers. It risked being seen as competent, as being committed to their jobs. So the workplace cultures where these men worked weren't always open and encouraging of them to take family leave. So what does that say when the men who are structurally positioned to access to these these benefits, who are more, who are privileged, to access these benefits still find it hard to do, to access them. What does that say about the state of uh, family leave in the United States, but also what does it say when those of us who are more privileged are also having difficulties, you know, meeting the expectation, the current expectations uh, to be involved in caregiving and nurturing parents? Um, What does that say for everybody else? So that's one way in which class really stuck out and as, as really shaping the, the opportunities these men have to be involved and engaging fathers.
0: And what about in terms of their attitudes to children, daughters, wives? We're assuming a heterosexual mm-hmm. family here. Um, were there class or age differences you saw when it came to things like religion, mm-hmm. Or roles mm-hmm. of women, or you mm-hmm. know, what you expect of a son versus what you expect of a daughter. Because some mm-hmm. of the guys you spoke to were probably grandparents too, or just about. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So in terms of, uh, so in terms of their, for instance, their relationships with their fathers, which is the second chapter of my book. What I noticed is. A lot of the college educated fathers held deep resentment towards their own fathers. And they, when they described their relationships with them, middle class, highly, you know, college educated fathers Mm. would leverage, they would deploy some of these racist myths. Um, uh, some of the, they, they described their fathers as like machistas, um, meaning machos, meaning hyper masculine. They, uh, ha- they held their fathers, you know, more accountable for their, how they made them feel as sons, for how they treated their mothers, for how they, you know, they treated their sisters. And they were more, they were less forgiving of their fathers than working class uh, and poor fathers and immigrant fathers. And the way that I describe that discrepancy is that when men go to college, in college, they learn to think about machismo as a form, as a culturally specific form of patriarchy. And so in college, they're exposed to these ideas about feminism, about Um, dominant forms of masculinity or hegemonic masculinity they're exposed to these ideas of patriarchy which they use to reflect on their own lives so they are so I, i i explained this these differences as having been exposed to these ideas in college then immigrant or working class fathers were not exposed. And of course, they had different life experiences. Um, you know, migration being one being one that shapes their sentiments about, about their parents and especially about the sacrifices their fathers made to provide for their families. Um, so that was one way in which class kind of operated in terms of how fathers made sense of their own fathers and how it really shaped their emotions and feelings towards them. Mm -hmm. Another way is with regards to childhood. So immigrant, first-generation immigrant working-class fathers really wanted to provide their children a different childhood than the one they, they had growing up in Mexico or in El Salvador. They wanted to provide their children this modern no modern ideal of childhood where children are free are are only you know concerned with play, they don't work to provide for their families children um have all the gadgets you know the p s five the the video gaming systems they have the latest trending shoes they have um the clothing that you know signals belonging to this modern middle class American version of childhood. Um, they wanted to provide their children that 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 they want to indulge their children because they weren't they didn't have the opportunity to do so growing up poor in, in Mexico or in El Salvador. So these men invested in this modern idealized notions of childhood whereas middle class fathers were very concerned that their children were becoming spoiled that their children were losing were not were losing empathy because many of the middle class fathers i interviewed they are second generation so they witnessed you know their, they they witnessed their parents struggling to provide for them in a new country, having migrated. So they're close to that immigrant working class experience, but their children are growing up in a middle-class setting. So the fathers who I spoke with, who grew up with what we call this immigrant narrative of their parents' struggles and sacrifice for them, they were they didn't really know how to pass on those that ethic to pass on those values to their children who are grow, growing up middle class who are two generations removed from the migrant experience and so they were were they were concerned they had said they had different sets of concerns about their children um not having this you know memory of 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 of, of struggle um this uh memory of of growing of having made it and so class shaped how they you know taking their children to mexico to trips to mexico to make sure that they maintained cultural roots um teaching them spanish because they were afraid that they were going to lose you know that part of their ethnic identity um telling them stories about growing up a poor in East Los Angeles, or, you know, or, or having or showing them like going to Mexico and showing them that others' children around the world don't have access to the same things we do in the United States. So, middle class fathers were a little bit more conscious and they were more intentional about how they passed on this sense of like cultural uh, memory and ethnic identity that they, their parents and, you know, and when they were children, they didn't think about because they were growing up in, in, in those
0: settings. One of the things you mentioned early on, Prof, was sexuality. Mm-hmm. The idea of, I think maybe you mentioned a stereotype of controlling daughters. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to us a little bit about sexuality in this context?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, out of the... Out of the 60 fathers I interviewed, only one identified as gay, um, but they had come out and identified as gay after, you know, they di- they divorced their ex-wife and their children were already teenagers. So that is one aspect of sexuality that I, that I do. I don't focus so much in the book, but it's something that I highlight when I write about that father's particular story. But in, in terms of sexuality, um, that subject didn't necessarily come up in my conversations with fathers. Um, they It wasn't, none of the fathers who had daughters expressed any concerns, particularly about their daughter's sexuality. They were concerned, especially fathers who only had daughters, they were concerned about the the quality of you know husbands and boyfriends their 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 daughters would have but they didn't they didn't express it in terms of sexuality in terms of like my you know daughter's like virginity or how many sexual partners or none of that it was more of a I hope you know they hope that their daughter's were um partner would partner with men who would re would respect them who would treat them well who wouldn't um who wouldn't uh prevent them from achieving their aspirations and their dreams who would support them um so they were more concerned about the quality of partners the their daughters would have their daughters would meet versus you know the you know their sexuality
0: um in in that sense So, Prof, I've got two more questions for you, if I may. And then what I'd like Mm -hmm. to do is throw it to you to add to or subtract from what Mm -hmm. we've said so far. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. So first question of the last two is to ask you about religion. Mm -hmm. By and large, when people are speaking about Latin America or Latinos, Latinas may say the church, that means Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But evangelical Protestant Christianity is really on the rise hugely Mm -hmm. in Colombia, in Brazil, in Mexico, and in East LA. Mm -hmm. So what part did religion play for these men? And were they from the church in Mm -hmm. inverted commas? Were they evangelical or none of the above?
1: Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. Um, And I do focus that on in my book. So um, out of all the fathers, the the overwhelming majority of them were raised catholic they were baptized they had their first communions they had they were confirmed some of them were married through the catholic church but a minority of them i believe i believe 10 of them were evangelical protestants they had um they they, they had converted to um, Christianity or to, excuse me, evangelical Christianity, and the way that they they linked and the way that religion came about in there and how they viewed fatherhood and how they viewed their roles as fathers was that <clears throat> they argued that Catholicism. Obstructed that the the way in which Catholicism is organized obstructed their what they thought should be a personal relationship with God. So the men who the men who converted, you know, overwhelmingly shared that when they were Catholic or identified as Catholic, they didn't feel a personal, individual, emotional connection with God. It was wasn't until they became evangelical Protestants that they finally felt like God as if God was their father, and they linked that personal emotional relationship with god they uh, they they related that to how how they thought about their own relationships with their children, so they after once they converted all of them told me. That their relationships with their children shifted, becoming more connected, more engaged, more emotionally um, uh, connected to their children. And the men, they they couldn't separate. They related the changes they experienced in their relationships with their children to the changes in their relationships with God. So they linked those two. And they really credited their newfound faith on having saved their families and having saved their relationships with their children. The, and then I had a subset of fathers who all of them were college-educated fathers who were also identified as Chicano Um, And Chicano in the United States is uh, a political identity related to Mexican-Americans' racialized experiences as minorities in, in the United States. And so those subset of fathers who were raised as Catholic, no longer identified as Catholic, but instead they adopted Native American or indigenous Practices and spiritual spiritual beliefs to guide their parenting, and so they took their they they told me they took their their children to sweat lodges. They took them to uh, indigenous Native American ceremonies. They um, really related this uh, this spirituality to their children because they believed that Catholicism. Um, is a colonial relic, and that, and so part of their political orientation um, was infused into their like spiritual practices. And then I had other fathers who identified as Catholic were didn't go to church. <laughs> they were they were what, what was that phrase four times a year Catholic <laughs> during weddings and you know baptisms and Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but for them, you know, Catholicism, they didn't in, they didn't indoctrinate mm. their children with Catholic beliefs, but they but some of them did feel that, you know, they baptized their children because it would make grandma happy because it was a way to continue this cultural memory, this relationship Um, because often being Catholic is is combined or uh, um, combined with being Latino, as you said, right, that there is this infusion between the two. Um, So it's a diverse set of experiences. um, But but religion being but religion was definitely in the backdrop of how these men thought about their about their roles as fathers.
0: And my last question, Prof, before throwing to you and then liberating you
1: from yeah.
0: <laughs> your interrogation, is to ask about whether you saw a difference in their attitudes to sons versus daughters. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, that's a good question. Your fathers were very supportive of their daughters. They conveyed having similar goals, similar dreams, similar aspirations for both their sons and daughters, but I had, there were a few fathers who admitted that they were a little bit harder on their sons than their daughters, particularly around discipline. And they, uh, some of the fathers shared with me that they were more patient with their daughters um, when their daughters would misbehave or would be very, you know, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't settle down. They'd be hyper. Fathers exercised a greater degree of patience with their daughters. But with sons, father fathers told me that it took more of them to, to it. it took more of them to be patient, be calm. Some of them did admit to me that they shouted, they spanked. Um, their fa- their sons more than they did their daughters, and so in terms of discipline, in particular, fathers were a little bit harsher with sons. They were less patient. They were um, less um, uh, flexible than they were with their daughters, and I and I think part of it is because in in the United States and in other cultures fathers are still held responsible for socializing masculinity onto their sons and for being the role models the parental role models for their sons so fathers may feel added pressure to correct to discipline their sons than their daughters because in given the gendered division of parental labor fathers are seen as responsible for the well-being and adjustment of their sons, um, even though there's several fam, plenty of families where there are no father figures and sons are emotionally stable, happy, and living fulfilling lives with with their caregivers, um, but that still remains the dominant vision, a definition of fatherhood. And so, there were some differences. And often those differences meant that sons were held accountable to higher standards than their daughters um, and were punished more frequently than than girls.
0: Thank you so much, Prof. So over to you if there are some things we haven't touched on that you'd Mm like to close with or if you want to go back and reflect on anything that we did mention. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. I really enjoyed, you know, dialoguing with you and speaking about you of of, of all these various topics we covered. And um, just, you know, I just want to finish off by saying that, yeah, this book is really about how a group of men are wrestling with the different ideas they're told about what it means to be a good father. The imagery and the expectations that are placed upon men to be loving, engaging, and caregiving parents, and the reality, the social reality is, is that our society makes it difficult for men to be caregiving parents, for men to be involved. And what you know, what and, and my book really looks at, you know, on the ground, men on the ground. You know, try, taking it day by day, trying to be the best parents they can be for their kids, in spite of the challenges, um, and and in spite of the of the climate in which we live, they they are still working every day to be the best parents they can be. And I and I hope readers, when they read the book, are able to walk away with that.
0: Prof. Fatima Suarez, mil gracias. De nada. No puedo esperar <laughs> leer el nuevo libro muchas gracias hasta luego <laughs> hasta luego